Welcome to Terminal Talk, episode 15. 15. Hexadecimal F. I'll take your word for it. Okay, and we have a special guest this week. Really, isn't every one of our guests special in their own way? Well, yeah, that's why I say it. All right, I'll allow it. Peter Enrico, who's president of Enterprise Performance Strategies, and he's going to talk to us about performance. And other things. He covered a lot about uh, WLM uh, and a a little bit uh, towards the end of the episode about uh, IBM's uh, pricing strategy. Yeah, that's kind of... uh, Yeah. 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 And so, without further ado, Peter Rico. It's time for the podcast with two hosts who are certainly on demand. It's Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. Okay, so we're lucky today. We have uh, Peter Rico, President and CEO of EPS. Enterprise Performance Strategies, yes. Yeah, that was my you. first question. <laughs> Enterprise Performance Strategies, yes. Is Don't there me. a comma in there? or <laughs> What does the pause in, uh, imply? No, 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 no pause. Okay. No, no comment implied. <laughs> <laughs> but you do everything, right? You come in and, and help people with performance. You do education. You, you kind of right. do everything. We do my, – my company, what I do, my colleague Scott Chapman do specifically is – Performance education because we really focus on ZOS performance because there are a lot of new people out there today, especially even people who are experienced that are moving into a new assignment. Uh, we do uh, consulting, which is um, you always need people who need help. You always have people who need help. And then on the sec- third thing is we do uh, software. We do a lot of performance reporting because uh, reporting is a big part of performance. So, okay, so you're talking to somebody who's really never been a performance guy. I've always been more focused on function, getting people to do things more than anything. So to somebody who's new, what's the first thing you tell them about performance? Um, Okay, so for me, performance is two main responsibilities. The two main responsibilities you have for performance is you have the optimization of system resources and you have – the optimization or the, uh, you know, try to get workload performance to be as great as possible. So when I say optimization of system resources, you figured you have this processor, this keck. You have a certain amount of storage. You have a certain amount of bandwidth. Whatever it is, some sort of resource, and you want to get as much out of it as possible. And on the other hand, you have these workloads where you have a transaction or a series of transactions, batch jobs, CICS transactions, DB2 queries. And you want them to perform as good as possible. And what it really boils down to is that you have these two main responsibilities, but the problem is, is that they have conflicting objectives. They're conflicting each other. Hmm. So, for example, you think of, of resource optimization. You want to get as much of your processor out, as, you know, out of your processor as possible because you figure they're very expensive. And, uh, and, and, and asking for more capacity, you're going to make your manager very unhappy. Well, it's easy to get rid of, you know, workload. If you, if you remove workload, demote workload, you, you cap workload, you can easily get more time, more life out of your processor. But that's going to hurt your workloads. On the flip side, you want to make your customers happy by having, you know, good throughput, good response times. And the thing there is you can always make them much more happy if you've got a bigger machine. But that's not going to make the manager happy, but it'll make the customer happy. So when it comes to optimization of resources and workload performance, they're conflicting objectives. So there's always that struggle between the two and trying to find the balance. And for me, that's what performance is all about. That's what ZOS or any performance is all about. It's really always trying to find that balance. Um, and, and, and that's what the story is. That's what it's about. <laughs> Do you have to spend time kind of interviewing people before you give this advice so that you can figure out where the, where to, 
draw that line? Well, yeah. I mean uh, a lot of it is intuition. You got to remember a lot of it. You know, I've been doing it for 30 years. Um, but besides that, um, when you think of performance recommendations, you think of several things. One is going to be that there's going to be general setup recommendations. You might not have a performance problem today, but if you just set it up this way in case there's a performance problem, in case there's a burst of activity, at least just set up properly. But when it comes to performance, you also have to have to kind of know the business metrics involved. Um, for example, when you say I want to get good workload performance, well, what are your workloads? Well, how important are they to the business? You know, what is the flow of that workload? Is it all on ZOS? Is any of it outside of ZOS and flowing back in? And and what are the most expensive transactions from a dollar point of view in terms of the the business itself versus, let's say, how much is how expensive are these transactions from a capacity point of view? So you kind of have to tie it to the business. So you usually have to ask the customer, you know, what their workloads are, what they're doing. I mean, I feel bad saying this, but, you know, I've worked with so many customers over so many different industries that I think of them as widgets. You know, whether you're banking, with, you know, what's a banking transaction, an eight, you know, a, a, a manufacturing transaction, a government cutting a check, whatever it is, there's sort of uh, these widgets. And as long as you understand the background of these widgets, as long as you understand the background of these workloads um, and, and how they are integrated into the business, then you kind of use that as a sort of a springboard into um, performance and how to tune the workloads and how to tune the systems. So, so do you do that in a way? Do you ever look at one and say this is kind of representative, and then I can start to tune the system for that, or are you more focused on uh, across? Well, I a guess hard question, right? I, yeah, it's. I guess it's. I guess I have to think of each individual assignment. I mean, what I generally do, me personally, what I generally do is I first look at system performance. You know, how is the environment set up? Because generally speaking, if you have the environment set up properly, if if you're uh, um, uh, you know, you have enough storage, your coupling facility structures are large enough, whatever it may be. If you have that set up properly, that's a big way towards optimal performance because then you don't have to worry as much about the optimization of the resources because hopefully the, this, the, the uh, controls are set up properly. And then I tend to focus on the higher importance workloads. You know, customers will know their workloads. That's one thing you'll find out. You know, you're going to go into a customer and I may know, not know anything about that customer and immediately they're going to talk about some specific workload that's given them problems or, you know, the market opens at 930 and this is what has to happen or nighttime comes and we need to do this with our batch workload. They'll know exactly what transactions they really want you to focus on or the workloads they really want you to focus. Not that you don't focus on the others, but you tend to focus on those. Um, and that's how I do it. I sort of pick the ones the customer goes to first or what they mention first and kind of go from there. But are they aware of the what happens behind uh, the technical side of it? It sounds like they know the business side of it. Are they aware of sometimes how complex they are? Yes. These customers will know it much better than I will ever okay. know. It. I mean, they know. <laughs> customers know. Maybe not the people I'm working with because I might be working with the ZOS performance group or maybe I'm working with, you know, some, some you know, let's say Kicks performance group or whatever. But the in the end, there's going to be someone or a group of people in the company who will know their applications, will know the code, will know how the workload is put together. We'll never, I'll never know it that well. I mean, especially I work with, you know, how many dozens of clients every year. I'll never even remember it two weeks later. Um, they're going to have to always remind me what it was I was looking at because every workload, every customer is sort of different. They will know. Trust me. They, they know their sensitive points. These customers know what's costing them money. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I remember, uh, working with a Korean company who had normalized their database. It was a, it was a thing of beauty. It was an architectural beauty. They they actually had separated men and women into different tables. I mean, it was beautifully architected architecture for a database. 
and it performed like crap yeah. <laughs> because it was, it was it just wasn't efficient. Right. I mean, it's the same. When I worked at IBM, I, I'm not an IBM anymore, obviously. But one of the things I did at IBM, along with a group, and we'd all take turns being responsible for a particular MVS release. And in my case, I was responsible for the performance of MVS 5.2 and 5.2.2. And if you don't remember, 5.2 was just the second release of Parallel Sysplex. So I, I think Logger was like one of the biggest uh, line items in that one. And MVS 5.2.2 was Unix System Services. And what it really was, a job was, is you, 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 you work with the benchmarkers, you analyze the data, but then it's really going back to the developers and saying, you got to scrub your code, you got to do this, you got, this is not working right. Um, it's working probably functionally just from a performance point of view. You got to rethink this, and it's amazing how you're absolutely right. You, it, something can work functionally, but not necessarily perform, and especially something like operating system code or a transaction that you know might get executed. You know how many millions of times per day? You got to be sensitive to all the nuances of that transaction flow and database and whatnot. And that's something that I think a lot of people new to the platform or unfamiliar with the platform aren't really aware of is that shaving a millisecond off of a transaction that gets called a million times a day, I mean, I don't have a calculator here, but that's, it, if we can shave a millisecond off there, it literally saves money, oh, yeah. not just time out of the day. It's it's substantial. Well, it's funny. We, we spent a lot of time, Jeff and I spent a lot of time with guys from from that, that small mom and pop uh, Yeah, company. down in uh, Arkansas. Yeah, was yeah whatever, 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 whatever. Go on, go on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, they do, they do an awful lot of transactions. And they really care about the most minute performance of some little thing because a, a nanosecond yeah. matters to them. Uh, and that's kind of mind-blowing when you think about – Well, yeah. I mean, I mean I never did this work. But back when I was in IBM, they were the hardware people, the I guess yeah, hardware, uh, hardware performance analysts upstairs that back when the uh, order of the instructions really mattered for the cycling of the of cycle time – and there would be people who would take pieces of the operating system, assemble a code, and just analyze it for for cycling and then rearrange the instructions, maybe even introduce new instructions into it in order to just optimize that cycling because you'd be surprised if something gets called how many – I don't know how many zillions of times, whatever per day. Right. Uh, how that really makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, you can serialize it correctly. Yeah, it's it's amazing how the. I mean, that's why compilers are so important. You know, com, you know, you think, oh, it's a compiler. It's just gonna, you know, take the whatever the whatever the uh, high level code is, and eventually it translates it down to machine instruction. That has to be optimized, and that's why these compilers are not as simple as people might imagine. That you're just translating it to the hardware instruction set. You're actually translating it to a hardware instruction set that makes the most sense from a performance point of view. Right. I mean, performance is going to be in everything that you're going to do. You know, I always tell people if you're going to get into something, you know, applications are interesting because you're going to be working with them. You know, you'll, you'll know your application and you'll learn that application and you'll be, no offense, you'll be stuck with that application for a long time <laughs> because that's the nature of the application. But when you get to something like security, when you get to something like performance, the thing is always changing. You're always going to have that challenge. You know, the processes, yes, they're getting faster, they're getting more efficient. You know, the compilers, the, everything's happening to make performance much better, but you're always going to have that next challenge. I mean, you know, look at an episode of Star Trek and they're going to save the universe, but they're doing it by a wire because if that computer was just a little bit faster, uh, <laughs> they would have not had the problem that they're having and they would have conquered the Borg 10 minutes ago, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so when you when you first look at something, are you looking at the knobs that you can turn, like the the, the, the things you can go after first? Yeah, I, that's a hard one. I'm, I guess uh, what I look at first, I tend to look at um, 
not so much what is controlled by the knobs. I usually look at things like capacity is a big one because in today's day and age, no offense to IBM, these processes are extraordinarily expensive. The software is extraordinarily expensive. The pricing model is, um, let's say, challenging. Oh, you have to pay for these microphones somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what happens is you end up you end up looking at all right. Let's look at the most expensive resource and how it relates to the most expensive resource and how that's being utilized by the workloads. Um, we tend to focus a lot of times on not just the performance of the workloads, but of course, as you know, you get billed, I'm sorry, your software prices are billed on the peak usage of the month. And so you want to focus on the peak usage of the month. So there's a lot of things you look at first because it's all sort of a, um, you know, it's sort of like squeezing one of these, you know, stress balls where you squeeze it, it's going to pop out someplace else. And then you squeeze it again, it pops out another place. That's what you have to be careful about performance. So I tend to look from the processor downward. I tend to look at, you know, from let's say the machine performance, the LPAR performance, the, the processor caches, maybe things like hyper dispatch. I then look at the workload performance in terms of processor and then down to the transaction and SQL level. Um, and then you could do the same sort of exercise for, let's say, memory. You know, you look at the machine memory, you look at how the machine's being used by the LPARs, et cetera. Eventually, it's going to be, you know, what is it I have and how is it being used at the most granular level? Because eventually, if you look at it at a granular level and you add up all those transactions, it's going to be what's being used at the machine level. So um, that's sort of the approach I take. And is it just the greatest feeling in the world when you find that that thing that's spinning kind of needlessly? Well. There is one major loop that if they can fix it, it would solve everybody's problem. That's called the dispatcher. But besides that, <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, no. They, 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 you know what it is? It's, it's a lot of times it's really about making sure that it's set up properly. You know, most performance problems are not always happening moment by moment, 24 hours a day. It's usually happening at a peak period of the day. It's usually happening at a peak workload. It's happening um, – you know, you don't know when they're happening. The customer knows when they're happening. You know, I will be honest. I had a, I, I'm not going to say what the fix was, but I had a customer once that they, uh, they were on one of these CPU reduction exercises. You know, you got to save CPU. So they did this whole big exercise and, and they called an IBM and they called in some other groups and, you know, they're trying to shave all the CPU and they, it was a successful project, but they never got the CPU down that well. So they said, ah, let's try Peter and Rico. And I happened to see one thing that nobody else saw. And I said, let's change that one thing. Just see what happens when you change that one thing. And I think the CPU, the machine utilization went down by like 6% or 7%. It was a huge <laughs> – But and that feels good. I will be honest. Yeah. But that comes very rarely. That very rarely that does that Was that happen. when you hit the turbo button? On the <laughs> no. The thing, was, is that, the thing was is that that happened when I was teaching a class. So in that case, you know, the, the person had come to my, my classes because in my classes what we do is we have the customer bring their data in. And then in the class, not only are they learning something, but they're actually doing a productive analysis of their own environment. So that way when you leave the class, you're actually having done a piece of work. So people come to the class just to say, I'm going to spend a week, let's say, you know, uh, tuning my workload manager service definition or whatever it is, Sysplex or whatever it is. And uh, in this per case, the person came to the class and paid the fee for the class, which is great. <laughs> and they got this recommendation that landed up saving them more than all IBM and everybody else combined in this study. That made <laughs> me feel good. I will admit it. And, and they got it for the price of a class. So you you left uh, IBM in 1997 when you were eight. Yeah, sure. Um, and you, so you've been doing performance for customers for quite some time on your own pretty much for most of that time, right? You had your own company. You started your company. I started my company in uh, uh, 2000. So between 97 and 2000, I worked for various people. Um, had artists. I did some time with Cheryl Watson. And I actually took on some independent contracts having to do with uh, – IBM actually hired me to do some work. But yeah. And so from 2000, you've had – you've been running 
this is now 17 years, right? And I'm still eating, so. (laughs) (laughs) So um, when did you start, when did you change over from just doing performance stuff for people to actually starting to teach people how to do their performances? Well, I've always been lecturing. I mean, when think, take RMF as an example. When I was back in RMF, when Prism first came out, you know, there was really no one in the RMF group who really wanted to go out and explain what the Prism partition data report was and how you read the partition data report and how do you look at these measurements and what short engine effects and things like that. So at the time, uh, the MVS performance group at Share was represented by Bernie Pierce and then there was something called the CME group, which I don't remember quite what it means now. They needed a presenter for the capacity management, I think it was. Uh, and so I would go to Share and Guide and other conferences on a regular basis just presenting. In this case, I would present RMF, no, up, up, RMF updates, let's say, and, and things like PRISM. When Workload Manager first came out, uh, I did a lot of presentations on Workload Manager. So what happens is you end up learning how to present. You learn to work, working with a lot of different customers because at the time, Workload Manager was just being implemented and nobody quite knew how to do it or, uh, you know, I, I turned on Workload Manager and now this isn't performing the same. And so it wasn't just me. I mean, there's other people who worked on it, but I tended to be the one that did a lot of the presentations. And then from that, you know, I, I did a lot of other assignments for IBM, but it ends up morphing into a case where, you know, you're presenting at these conferences. I mean, I've been presenting at the IBM Tech U or whatever it used to be called since the first one. I don't think I've missed one yet in the last 30 years. Yeah. Now, you, you touched on, on uh, WLM. I think we're probably going to bring it up a couple more times. If somebody who's kind of new to the platform and they know it's a thing and it does something with, you know, adjusting workloads uh, and managing them, uh, <laughs> can you can you kind of uh, say a word or two about, uh, like, what it is, how it works, what it looks at? and Sure. I mean, inside the operating system, there's a component called the System Resource Manager, or SRM. And what System Resource Manager is mostly responsible for is the allocation of resources to the workloads. And that's where you get your things like dispatching priorities and, and, and things such as that to, to allocate what resources go to the workloads. And you're not just and, talking about like CPU and memory there, but the, the resources built into the operating system well, as well. Well, we're talking about CPU and memory. You know, okay. you know, I have a big batch workload. Which jobs are going to get the CPU or which workloads? And so in the case of uh, before Workload Manager, the SRM, the customers would have to statically define all their controls. And then you had to decide, you know, right, what workload was going to have what highest CPU dispatching than, prior than the other and, and all sorts of minute controls like that. And they were static. So what happens is as the workload changed, you probably wouldn't change your controls even though the workloads were themselves were changing. Maybe batch would come in at night and online was over and that. So what the workload manager is is sort of this thing on top of re- system resource manager. And now it's more pervasive through the operating system. But at its core, what the workload manager does is the controls of the uh, uh, the assignment of the resources to the workloads based on a set of objectives rather than saying to the rather than saying to the operating system this is the dispatching priority I want the workload to run at instead you say to the uh, uh, you say to the operating system look I want these transactions to achieve a quarter second response time I, actually I want 90% of them to achieve a quarter second response mm-hmm. time it's okay if 10% of them don't or I have this big long running uh, uh, CIC CS workload or batch workload, um, 
I have an end objective for it, but it's going to run for a long time. I don't want to say it has to end in five hours, but I want it to continually make progress. Sort of like I have this, I'm going down the road, I have to get home by five o'clock. You don't, you don't make the objective to be there by five. Yeah, that, maybe that's your objective, but you want to make sure that your speed on the road is a certain sort of, you're regularly making progress. And so what workload manager is, is you're giving the workloads an objective. And then the operating system in the background is collecting lots of statistics about the workloads, lots of statistics about the operating system, about the transactions, a lot of things. And then eventually what it will do is it will match the resources up to the workloads in order to meet those objectives as efficiently and effectively as possible. And how can you be sure that you're setting uh, realistic goals? Uh, you contact me. I'll okay. give you my phone number. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, that's a fair. I mean, uh, the two biggest problems, with, well, not two biggest problems, but two common problems with workload manager that, that customers always sort of getting themselves into is A, the goal is way too easy, or B, the goal is way too hard. So a realistic goal is what you want the work not just to achieve, but what the work needs to achieve. But when I say the goal is way too hard, if you make a goal way, way too hard, you know, the natural inclination is to say, oh, I have this transaction. I wanted to achieve uh, half a second. It's not achieving a half a second. So I'm going to lower the goal to quarter second. I'm going to lower the goal to a tenth of a second. If I make it harder and harder, <laughs> that's going to make workload manager give it more resources, where in fact, workload manager could be doing the best it could possibly be doing. And maybe the problem has to do with the code. Maybe it has to do with, you know, something totally out of WLM's control. So that's a common problem people get into. And on the flip side of that is if uh, a goal is way too easy and it's always being met, and not only is it always being met, but it's always easily being met, WLM says, oh, here's a workload, importance level one, maybe it's even DB2, but it's easily meeting its goal. But I have this lower importance workload that's having a tougher time. I'm going to take resources about from this high importance workload because it's easily meeting it. And when I take those resources, he's still projected to meet the goal and I'm going to give it to this other workload. And so what ends up happening from a resource allocation condition is that workload, let's say DB2, gets a low CPU dispatching priority. Everything's performing perfectly fine. So who cares? Then it takes some big batch job to come in, some something coming in at a higher dispatching priority that all of a sudden – makes DB2 or whatever it is at the lower priority not be able to get any resources and that's where you have these sort of, you know, stoppages or delays in the system and sort of problems like that. It reminds me of kind of when you check into a hotel room and there's a thermostat on the wall and it says uh, desired temperature and room temperature and you go in and say, oh, it's set to 70 degrees and you keep hitting down yeah. and no matter what you do, the room temperature still stays around like 68. Well, I'm going to lower it to 62. Yeah. No, it's not getting below 68. <laughs> so <laughs> Then all of a sudden you wake up in the middle of the night and you're wondering why your lips are blue and you can't. <laughs> I, don't want to leave, I don't want to leave the covers. Finally, it caught up. <laughs> So this is this is key because you know we've kind of been talking around stuff, but but we're really getting right now to the point where we're talking about why ZOS is fundamentally different from other operating systems. So I'm wondering if we can kind of talk around some of this WLM stuff a little bit more, um, because if you're new to the system and people will say, well, gee, the the thing that makes WLM or ZOS different is because of this WLM thing. Uh, before we had WLM, you would actually change things in uh, ParmLive to define. Yeah, your static controls. Right. Could you kind of explain what those were before, what it was like before WLM? Oh, I have, firstly, now you're talking 30 years ago, but um, it really was more complicated. I mean, you had a ParmLive member, it was a text file. Um, 
and to point out each individual system had their own palm live member. It was called IEA, uh, OPT, I'm sorry, not, I'm sorry, IPA, IEA, like um, IEA, IPS, right. right. And each system had their own individual. So right there you're talking about if I have a, a 10 system sysplex, then I'm going to have 10 individual sets of controls because the workloads on each system might be different. So now I got to figure out the right controls for each of the individual 10 systems, which might be different. And they're all static, by the way. And then, for any one system, you had these controls where you, these objectives and you had to say, well, you know, I want uh, VTAM to have a higher CPU dispatching priority than JEZ and I want this batch job to go before this other batch job in terms of dispatching priority. I have this other batch workload I want to make sure is given this much storage. And the point is, is that they really were these complex um, static controls that typically you're not going to change them in the middle of the day. You're not even going to change them. Shift-wise, I mean, they're just complicated. And if you know about workloads, I mean, think about it that during the day you have your online workloads and it's your CICS and you, and you have that sort of setup and, and at nighttime you have your batch workloads, which might be a completely different setup, but you wouldn't change these controls. And then you had system A versus system B where maybe the batch was running on both, but maybe this batch was running with, uh, you know, maybe DB2 was, this was, this included the test workload in addition to the production workload. And there's all sorts of things like that happening. So without going into the details, cause I don't even remember all the individual controls, just know that they were, um, very static technical controls that were not as easy to understand and there was never a perfect answer and they did not change as the workload changed, as a new workload came in, as – I mean think about it. If, if, if time goes by, maybe the static controls are perfect today. They're perfect. But then five months from now, you might have an in- increase in lo- workload. Maybe um, business is better. And so you have that many more transactions and so the controls of five months ago were not necessarily the best controls when you increase – the uh, uh, the business. And oh, by the way, now we got to change 10 different systems to find out what's optimal. So it was very complex. With Workload Manager, at least you have one set of controls, although it does cause some challenges there, but it does have one set of controls for the individual sysplex itself. So that way, WM can do some sort of uh, independent management of each individual system. Each system individually gets independently managed, but at least the controls are constant and, and throughout, and there's some sort of sharing and, and distribution going on. It seems like so much of uh, the you know the the birth and uh, acceleration of the platform comes from uh, taking single system thinking and applying it to a sysplex and and just wondering how will this work how should this work and we're yeah. just very uh, we're very fortunate that uh, they made a lot of good guesses. <laughs> oh, there was again when I worked at IBM, there were so many brilliant people who made such huge differences because not just what you just mentioned, but you eventually you had to go from one CPU to multiple CPUs. You know, from multiple CPUs to maybe, you know, multiple chips or books or whatever it was, um, you know, you had to think to yourself, what do you do? You know, how, how does all that get managed? Not just from a performance point of view, but then you think about the reliability, the availability, the, you know, all of that. It's, it's kind of an awesome thing to think about. Right? Yeah. I mean, the other operating systems, don't, I don't want to cut them short. I mean, they're very complex. They have their own strengths versus ZOS, but ZOS is special. I will, I will, have to say that. I mean, it is a special operating system because um, a lot of things were actually created by ZOS or MVS um, developers and designers that are now being borrowed by other uh, platforms because they realize that, you know, some of this stuff is not easy to solve. And and, and uh, I, I know mostly the performance algorithms, but I can't even imagine the security algorithms, the availability algorithms, the, the serviceability, the integrity um, is a big thing where I remember when I was at IBM, we used to have to go to integrity, these integrity discussions with I think Carl Schmidt was the name. And, uh, you know, he gives us these little puzzles. What's wrong with 
this piece of code and you have to figure it out. Well, it looks perfectly good to me. It does exactly <laughs> what you said it was going to do, but then it comes up to a solution. Well, you know, if during a, a cycle and somebody comes in on this CPU when this other CPU is not doing anything and blah, 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 and I'm going to break into the operating system. I mean, that is how much thought goes into this operating system uh, in terms of just all the qualities of service. I don't know if the users know all the qualities of service, but it's just amazing what, what they've done. Yeah, it's it's very awesome. <laughs> well, this is, you know, it's very hard for somebody to understand if if you've grown up in a world with Unix or Windows and and there is a lot of complexity in those environments as well, but not to the to the degree, right? Well, well think of it as this. I mean, I mean, you're going to have of course, there's a lot of companies that work with these distributed systems and whatnot. I mean, that's going to be a certain size company, but you're not going to be able to run um, uh, the United States government on a distributed server with a single database that maybe has to be, you know, everybody goes to the same system and, or maybe the database is split. I mean, just from a, uh, a sheer size point of view, what's interesting about ZOS is the power of the access of the data, right? The power of how many transactions can happen simultaneously and not just don't think of a transaction as oh I run this program and I'm done I mean these transactions are complex pieces that if one part fails you have to roll back everything if all parts succeed then you commit everything uh, you know the transaction might be distributed amongst multiple systems and might go to multiple databases uh, multiple subsystems and that is not easy to achieve and one of the things with ZOS is that you know these Development and design groups really have communicated so that they can seamlessly do it. It seems like magic. It's quite complex under the covers and if you get to learn it, it really is fascinating. But it just looks so simple and I think that's one of the weaknesses of the platform is that it does look simple where <laughs> what they're doing is quite complex and, and other platforms just can't grow to the size. You can't run some of these huge, you know, mom and pop stores in Arkansas <laughs> on on, uh, on uh, uh, a Windows system and or or some of these other systems. Our, our customers tend uh, not to be the kind that would pop up an error message that starts with "whoops." Yeah, I mean, exactly, <laughs> or, and end with "try it again." That's right. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't say, uh, "Okay, just turn this off and wait five minutes and yeah. try it again." Right? No, just no, it's happen. it really is amazing what goes into it. You you already kind of talked about the the really coolest situation you've had where you came up with the thing that nobody else saw, but over the thirty or so years you've been doing this, what would you say is the the coolest thing about doing performance? Um, that's an interesting question. The coolest thing about doing performance, I love looking at measurements. I mean, we seeing patterns of activity. And realizing that, you know, the customer is suffering for this period of time because of this pattern of activity. You know, one of the things like we worked with a customer recently or fairly recently where, you know, their processor was regularly 40% busy, 50% busy. They had tons of extra capacity. So you say, well, what's the problem? The problem is they were a brokerage house of some sort and 9.30 in the morning comes and for you know 90 seconds or two minutes, they are spiked to 100% when all these market orders come in from the weekend or whatever. And it's a matter of really getting them set up so that you can actually see how if you almost position them coming out of the gate like a horse, you know, so that when the 9.30 mark does come, WLM or the, or the system resource manager, whoever doesn't have to do anything. Everything's positioned perfectly to handle that. 
That's some of the coolest things you do or the fact that you you have a workload or a customer really complaining and then you realize that if you change a few parameters, you see you know uh, a change in their transactions response time for the better or the fact that the customer is paying so much money based on their peak of the month and you realize the peak of the month is happening during a particular period of time due to a certain workload that really maybe doesn't have to run during that period of time. And all of a sudden now they're able to save so many MSUs per month, uh, per billing, you know, per peak, which might actually lower their costs. And that's what it really is all about. Um, the challenges are really pervasive. Um, performance is a great area to be in for anybody who's thinking about it because, again, the challenge is always going to be there. It's always going to be we need it – we need to – Defer this upgrade. We need to make this transaction faster. We need, we don't have enough money. We have to last a few more years. And once you get into those situations, it all really comes down to performance is really, and, and capacity planning and performance. So a, a one hard question before we leave. Have you had a chance to look at the, the new cloud pricing or, or container-based pricing? And do you think that's going to change? The I, do things? my, my colleague Scott Chapman, who is brilliant in that area, gets into that. I don't. I mean, that's, I will be honest, after 30 years, I sort of, you know, so let Scott do that sort of stuff. So I, I'm not going to say yes to that question. We can easily ask Scott. I can call him up real quickly. But um, I will say this, though, that the pricing models of IBM over the last number of years have been a problem. And IBM has got to do something to fix it. So um, if that, you know, whether that fixes it or helps it or lowers the prices or makes it simpler, I don't know. Um, I wish they would just fix the problem. So I'm not sure <laughs> that's going to fix the problem, but I wish they would fix the problem. And I'm sure you're going to edit that out since I kind of badmouth the pricing models. Nope, not at all. Actually, no. That's the, the podcast is not an IBM podcast. Okay. So it's, it's okay. We can we can say stuff. It's, uh -oh. We might end up in someone's office. But, Again, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it won't be the first time. No, well, no. But the pricing, time. you know, and and it's it's amazing how today's day and age a lot of the work we have is driven by pricing because uh, rather than really worrying about optimal workload performance, we find a lot of customers really um, hurting the performance of their workloads just because they can't – they're afraid of increasing their, their peak oh, of the month. Right. And, and it really is unfortunate. Um, and it's a whole discipline of performance, which is you know not just the resource optimization and workload performance, but how do I uh, optimize the pricing – so that I don't have to pay extra this month. And you look at the types of vendors that are at a conference like Share, and a good number of them are based around optimizing workloads to either exploit something or to shift to something else. And that it doesn't seem as pure as a – Well, it, but it goes to show you a shortfall in the platform. It definitely shows those to show you. It's not a – unfortunately, it's not a technical shortfall. So a lot of people in this complex, this IBM uh, site and, and wherever the IBMs are, can't really fix from a technical point of view. It really is a management and pricing problem. Um, and – in a lot of ways, I mean, that's what specialty engines were all about. Zip and zap engines. It was all about pricing. I mean, when 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 the architecture of the platform is being driven by pricing, that is a little worrisome. But fortunately, that's where you come in. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, yes, that is true. That is true. But it also, but to be fair, no, no, no. But to be fair, no, it should be discussed. I mean, it, oh, that's certainly. why performance is so important. But to be fair, it also is a reason why sometimes um, people leave the platform. I mean, the pricing is just is just has to be fixed. It's just too complex, expensive, um, and it and it does need to be uh, 
it's it's the number one. I know you guys like to put a positive spin on everything, <laughs> but to me, it is really the number one problem with this platform is the pricing, the prices. I'm not saying that the machines are too expensive or the software is too expensive, but the way the prices are fixed, I'm, I'm, I've figured out and calculated out, and how now you're making workloads suffer because I can't go over my budget. I can't. I'm afraid of peaking for the month above what I already peaked for. Um, oh, you know, I, I look. Wait, we're already down low. If we just if we just survive ten more days without going above this certain level, we're going to save so many tens of thousands of dollars. And now, all right, well, we're going to make our developers suffer. We're going to make our my productional suffer for an act an hour, and that's a problem. That's a real problem. Right. So yeah, we're, we're talk hoping. to talk to you. You have you have influence here. Come on, <laughs> yeah, right. Do it. Yeah, we're we're very influential people. <laughs> but that's where performance people are really focusing on these days. I mean, yes, it's optimization of resources, it's workload performance, but it's really the pricing is is big in performance. Yeah. Right. That, that's that's kind of what I was. Expecting to hear. Hopefully, I didn't offend anybody. No, 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 I'm sorry, anybody who I offended, and hopefully, they'll invite me back for truth, some more truth uh, is thoughts. Truth, right? I mean, this is, and I think that's the whole point of container-based pricing: is how do we start to change that model, right? And and uh, it'd be interesting to see if we get to the point where it's not about how do I save to the very last penny. How does your job change, and what happens? And it'd be kind of interesting to see over the next year or so. As people start moving to these kind of models, does that change the kinds of questions they ask you? So we'll have to have you come back and talk. Yeah, about I'd that. love to talk, especially about that stuff. Bring Scott back with me because he really has a lot of good insights in that as well. That'll Scott be very, Chapman, very cool. he's my colleague. For those people who don't know, but go. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, no, I appreciate you inviting me. This is a big. This is fantastic. This well, was very nice of you. Well, thank you very much for, for uh, giving us. The no, time. thank you. I appreciate both of your uh, questions. Thank you. I have to say, Frank, right there, that was a high-quality episode of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. Really? I, yeah. I, I'm not very happy. Really? What's what? Uh, what's I, going on that uh, big head of yours there? I, I don't think I ever want to have Peter come back. Really? He gave us fidget spinners. Yes, but he besmirched our journalistic integrity. How so? He said we would edit stuff out. As if. Would never happen. No, I, this is a high-quality journalistic... Uh, enterprise going on over here and and you know with people throwing spurious allegations around like that we'll we'll never get that pulitzer or even a blue face oh, oh. i'm just offended uh, i i see where you're coming from now hmm. peter enrico you are banned from the studio That's until right. next time we have you on in fact i am not going to eat peas until he says that he's sorry well, here we are at the end of the podcast. We want to thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to keep in touch, contact at TerminalTalk.net is the uh, email channel. Uh, if you want to hang out on Reddit, just go to the uh, slash mainframe subreddit. And we're on Twitter at TerminalTalk. Still no peace. And forget about peace. There's only one review out on iTunes. Yeah, it's like you don't like us or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I get if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But... I, we're, we're past that point. Say, say anything you want, really. As long as there's five stars next to your name. That's really all I care about. Maybe four. Just say something! Say something! You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. 
Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.